When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. We missed you last week, but we decided to go dark. There's too much pain in the world and too much pain happening all around us that Sabrina and I didn't know what to say or how to address any of this. So we thought it was best to regroup and really think. And one of the people who we are welcoming today has made us think. Please welcome Dr. Camille Charles. She is the professor of sociology and Africana studies and the undergraduate chair at University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater. Camille, we are so honored to have you. And I am so proud that you are a professor at Penn, which was uh, such a wonderful home for me for four years. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So your list of credentials is mind boggling. And when I kind of went through it, there was a couple things that jumped out at me. Your new book, which is coming out, which is the new, was it the new black race conscious or post-racial? You were one of the co-authors of a fascinating book, Race in the American Mind, from the Moynihan Report to the Obama Candidacy. And you, if anyone sees you on YouTube, speak so eloquently about the African-American experience in the United States. And I've been thinking a lot about race. And I'm a history major, or I was a history major. So when I can't get my head around something, I, I, I step back and try and put things in a historical context. Can you enlighten me as to how we've gotten here? Um, I mean, I, I, I think that we have to be honest about the fact that our country um, codifying their enslavement. Um, And so when we speak of, you know, uh, the pursuit of everybody having the the right to the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, or all men are created equal, um, you know, that that those those were not initially intended to include um, Blacks and other people of color. Um, Now, at the same time, you know, much has changed over the course of... uh, generations and centuries. However, we we need to take seriously the fact that this is a country that was organized around racial classification, right? And that rights and privileges um, were um, either given or held back uh, on the basis of race, um, on the basis of gender at various points, right? So that there are all of these cleavages, um, but that race is the one that we have been most, uh, um, 
I want to say afraid to confront head on, right? It's the deepest um, of of the chasms that we have. And um, it's the hardest one to, to fix, right? Because if if we wanted any, any piece of um, understanding racial inequality takes us all the way back to 1619, basically. Um, that, that at various points in our history, things were done that put people of African descent behind in terms of achieving the American dream. And we haven't been able to close those gaps. And part of the reason we can't close the gaps is because we don't want to face the enormity of the problem. Um, and, and we don't want to face the fact that racism is embedded in our institutions in such a way that it doesn't matter um, if people individually are not racist. It doesn't matter if, um, if quite often people are extremely well-intended, but they benefit from white privilege. And then once we want to talk about that, that gets to be uncomfortable. Um, and so, and again, once it's embedded in institutions, the institutions can go along and do the things they've always done. I know you do, you do, you do, you, you've written a lot about the educational system mm-hmm. and how that is one of the institutions that it's almost embedded in. But yet when minority students get to college, sort of the class disappears but the racism does not. Right, well, and, and class differences actually don't disappear, right? Um, you know, so that if you take an institution like Penn, where um, 45% of the white student body does not even apply for financial aid, their parents write a check, you know? Um, and conversely, I think upwards of 80% of the black student population is on some form of financial aid to one extent or another. And and a big explanation for that, a big reason for that is wealth disparities, right? So that even at comparable levels of income, African-Americans don't have the same amount of wealth and wealth is how we send our kids to college, right? It's it's stocks and bonds and investments, it's home ownership and, and home value and the ability to pull draw on the equity um, or, or that we had enough disposable income to invest and, and save money outside of retirement that we can use for these other things. But it's also having extended family members who can help out so that inheritance is a big part of wealth. And honestly, Black folks couldn't own a home easily before 1968. I was three. So it's only in my lifetime that that has been a real viable and, and broader option for Black Americans. But understand that even at that point, Blacks were relegated to particular areas in cities that were often in decline. Their, their neighborhoods are valued less simply because they are Black neighborhoods. Uh, so that even affluent Black neighborhoods are not valued economically in the way that comparable white neighborhoods are. Um, and so, when you put all of that together, you don't eliminate the class differences when you get everybody on a campus like Penn. I think especially Penn, where we're working very hard to bring in low-income and first-generation mm-hmm. college students, irrespective of race. Um, 
you actually exacerbate them. So, so it actually makes it worse um, once they get onto these campuses. And, and the racial issues don't go away either because racial stereotypes are embedded in American society. And so you still have black students who hear from white students, well, you're only here because of affirmative action. You know, you're not as smart. Um, and, and they actually are as smart, but hearing those messages and just knowing those, those beliefs are out there is enough to dampen academic performance among minority students for whom intellectual inferiority is a basic stereotype. Camille, what you're saying is it's not the same starting point for all of us. It's just exactly. not. No, it's not. In a nutshell. It is not. It is not. There is a, you know, 300, 400 year head start. Um, and, and because again, the other piece is that even with civil rights legislation, even with the Fair Housing Act, um, black people are several times more likely to be put into high risk mortgages, more expensive mortgages, even when they would qualify for conventional mortgages. Um, you know, so we do so much of this through real estate agents and agencies who have relationships with mortgage lenders. And there is this sort of automatic assumption that we should push minority home buyers into these higher risk mortgages so that when the housing market collapsed in 2008, it was um, minority homeowners who were much more likely to go into foreclosure, to be underwater on their mortgages because they were in mortgages that were more expensive in the first place and, that, and it wasn't done in a manner that made rational sense given their, their incomes, their credit history, uh, and those things. You know, what always seems to shock me is there is discrimination and exclusion, and you don't even know about it half, a t half the time if you are a person of color or, you know, a minority. You just don't know. And it's, it, it just continues, you know, there's like this undercurrent that continues to bring us down. And you don't even know what you're fighting against sometimes. I think it's the old adage, if we forget the past, we're doomed to repeat it. Well, I mean, I think that's part of it. But I also think that, you know, being white is like breathing in this country, right? It's normative. And so I was reading something this morning that, you know, when we're referring to black people, it's, it, it's you know, black people. But whiteness is like just talking about people. And so whiteness is normative and, and the white experience is normative. And so, of course, white people don't understand the, the concerns that minorities and other groups of color have with police, for example, because their experience of police is that normative protect and serve kind of experience. Um, the... the um, they don't understand when black and other people of color talk about microaggressions or prejudice and discrimination. They don't understand the, the sort of constant high alert over, am I being treated this way because this person, a bank teller, a server in a restaurant is having a bad day? Or am I being treated this way because I'm black? 
um, or because I'm Latino or because I'm, um, you know, gay or lesbian, trans. Um, those are not things that, that white heterosexuals and white heterosexual men in particular ever have to think about. And so it is quite foreign for them to consider that other people do walk through the world that way. But, but they do. They call it, you know, we call it a racial calculus, that there's always this kind of, okay, how do I respond to this? Because am I having this experience in this particular way because of something about me? Or is this, per again, is this person just having a bad day or do they just have bad people skills? Um, and then there is all of the stuff that happens that we don't even know about. So resume studies that show that just having a black sounding name um, decreases the odds that you'll get a callback by half, even when your resume is identical to or better than that of a white applicant. We, we don't know individually that that's what's happening to us or if it's happening to us, but we know that it's out there. Or if we get turned down for a mortgage or when we search for a house, we don't know individually, but studies show that we have to, that blacks have to look at more properties. They have to call the realtor back and follow up far more often than whites have to do. And you're right that that's something that in the moment when it's happening and we're working harder to get the same things, we don't know that these things are happening. You might have an idea, but often it happens and, and you have no idea at all. You, you, you've said in, in one of your YouTube lectures, you believe it is absolutely no accident that we are where we are. Um, no, I mean, people benefit, right, from things staying the way that they are. Um, if, because if you're going to really get down to brass tacks, right, if, if you're going to eradicate that inequality, that requires some kind of redistribution of wealth. And the people who have that wealth don't want to do that, um, or a lot of them don't, because that means that their life is going to, their lives are going to be less comfortable. Um, and there is a swath of the white population that gets forgotten in all of this, right? Not all white people are affluent. Not all white people have seen their incomes increase or their wealth increase over the course of the last, you know, three or four decades. And they fear that if we're gonna do something to help this group of people, then people like me are going to continue to suffer. Um, and so all of that makes it messy. Our politics make it messier still. And, and, and then there are those who just simply don't wanna believe that that's what's causing the problem. Because again, part of our racial legacy is this assertion of the innate inferiority of black people. And so if black people find themselves impoverished, they have no one but themselves to blame for that because they could work harder or maybe they're just not smart enough. Um, maybe they don't value education the same way that we do. And all of that has become part of our sort of cultural DNA. And so, you know, people have to fight hard against the inclination to just buy into that. Um, and all of that is hard. And, you know, there's no easy messaging 
um, that that works in a on a political landscape, right? And to to address those things. I mean, one of the things I found really interesting that you you've written and spoken about is uh, President Obama. By the white community, he was not seen as your typical black candidate. No. And they saw what him. They call a magical Negro. Exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. He wasn't like them. That's right. what I've heard. He wasn't right. like them. Yeah. Can you, you know, for people who are listening who maybe don't understand that, what what was that phenomenon? Well, so so here's the thing. You know, he's not. He's only a few years older than I am. We are both biracial. Um, never in my never in my life have white people, you know, thought to correct me and to say, no, you're not black, you're half white, right? Or not even to say you're only half black. Um, That if typically until very recently, if you have what we call discernible African phenotype, you are black, right? It's the one drop rule. Obama was the first time in my life that I actually, that you actually saw white people correct you and say, no, he's not black, he's half white. Um, that, that's one way to make him more palatable. He is also extremely intelligent, all Ivy League degrees and articulate, which is another code word for you're not like those other black people to be called articulate. Um, you know, I get, I get called articulate by other scholars. Um, and I just think, well, you know, it's part of the job description. I, I have mm-hmm. to lecture. I have to write. I have a PhD. Why, why must we comment on my being articulate? That's not something we comment on with, with smart white people because they're just smart people. Um, and so that's, that's one piece of it. Um, another piece is that he, has, he is Ivy League educated from, you know, from start to finish. Um, and he is, um, you know, he's not radical in his, in his speech, right? He is not the traditional civil rights kind of, um, orator, right? In, in, he doesn't speak like Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton. Um, he, he is more measured in his speech. He is more contemplative in his decision-making. He is not somebody who jumps right out there, um, you know, just sort of speaking off the cuff without having thought it through first. Um, He's a sharp dresser, right? He was always well-dressed in a suit and tie, even when it wasn't required, which is very much out of that traditional civil rights playbook. So he took the things out of that that are non-threatening to white people, um, but sort of left the things that were threatening because we still had a problem with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, we want to act like we don't, but he was assassinated. So there was a time when he was one of the most hated men in America. Um, you know, my mother marched in the 60s. So, so for me, the fact that he was so vilified to the point where he was assassinated is something I personally have never been able to get my, my head around. But he's trying to, he was trying to change things. Right. He was, he was questioning the status quo which, and, and people want to make that unpatriotic or un-American, except that we do it all the time in other ways. 
um, that are more or less, and actually I would say that are always less offensive than when blacks and other people of color try to challenge um, American society. So, so, I mean, so Obama, you know, what is safe for white people. Um, and in fact, one of the knocks that some blacks have of him is that he was too safe, um, you know, but he understood that the presidency is not an activist position. And, you know, you have to be president of all of the people. And in fact, another thing that I heard while he was running the first time around was, you know, that he would be president for black people. So who was going to be president for us? And implicit in that is that whenever there's a white president, that pre he is president of the white people, uh, right? Because either you think the president is for everybody all the time or you don't. Well, we've been seeing that that is not true lately. Well, yeah. Um, I have a question for you, Camille. Do you feel that racism has risen under our current president? I don't know that it's risen. I think that it's, um, you know, it's not, I think that there is an assault on what we have called political correctness. I, I like to think of it as civility. Um, so, so, I mean, I think that if he has made it acceptable um, to express certain ideas and opinions. Um, I don't think that they had dwindled to the point that we like to think that they had. I think that survey research tends to show that, um, well, for example, in a study of stereotypes among likely Democratic voters who voted for Obama, two thirds of them adhered to negative stereotypes of Blacks. That didn't go away. We just we just knew we were supposed to try to keep those things in check. Um, we weren't necessarily challenging ourselves to dismantle those stereotypes. Um, you know, they were uncomfortable. And so we tried to tuck them away and not think about them. I think it has become more okay in certain corners to be more open about that. I also think that social media and smartphones make it more visible because now we can video it. We can take photographs of things. We can see people's posts on social media. Um, and when things get heated the way they are right now, we can also see the way that people respond. Um, so one of, one of the most interesting posts that I've seen going around is, you know, um, whites being challenged for condemning the um, the looting, but not condemning the police killing of George Floyd, right? So, you know, and the idea that you should be at least as outraged about police brutality as you are of the loss of property, because property can be rebuilt. Mm -hmm. Business owners have insurance that covers these kinds of things, right? These are things that are replaceable. That man's life is not. No. And I so that, you know, you, because of social media, you see more clearly the difference in viewpoint and opinion. Sabrina and I were having a discussion the other day and we, we were talking about the looting and then going back to Rodney King and the LA riots. And it reminded me of something that a friend of mine 
said to me, which I it has always really stuck with me, which is, is as Americans, we tend to get behind a cause or a movement 100% whole hog, the whole thing, and then we lose momentum. Why can we not sustain? So one of the things that I talk to my students about when we talk about um, when we talk about civil rights and when we talk about sort of the fight against racism is that because of the way the American education system is set up, you know, I think about my own American history courses and the, the number of years we spent studying the Revolutionary War and the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the number of days we spent studying Black history or civil rights or the civil rights struggle. And so you have this image. I, I would guess that the average person has this image that the civil rights movement sort of took, you know, a few months, maybe a few years, and then everything was better because we talk about it as this watershed when, and that solved all of our problems. It did not. It solved legal problems, right? It gave black and brown people rights under the law. It did not solve the, the prejudice and, and the racism that was in the hearts and minds of American people that again has become part of our cultural DNA. It did not erase those stereotypes, right? It did not it did not eliminate acts of prejudice and discrimination because we have housing market studies all the time that show otherwise. We have labor market studies that show otherwise. People track hate crimes that show otherwise. Um, and so I think what happened was we got comfortable because we thought it was solved. We did not realize the effort and the, and the sacrifice for decades that, you know, that went into making those things happen. And we're comfortable in a way. So, that, you know, yeah, if you're on the East Coast, everybody's outside protesting when it's warm. It's hard to get them out there when it's cold, right? Mm -hmm. it, you have more black people and brown people who are in college and they're thinking, well, yes, this is important, but I've also been told that getting my degree is important. And I can't be out on the streets in the struggle all day, every day, and be getting the grades that I need to go to law school or to go to, to medical school. And there's this idea that there's only one way to be activist. And that's just not true, right? But we do need people who can sustain that kind of active protest. And it's not always going to be in the streets marching all day, every day, right? It, that, that doesn't need to happen 365 days a year. But some things do need to be kept out there. Um, and again, we need to be more, we need to realize that there are lots of ways to, to participate in that struggle. Um, some people aren't comfortable in crowds. So going to a march is too scary for them but you could donate money to a cause. You could provide supplies for protesters. You can, you know, there, there are other things that you can do. And in spaces like elite higher education, the truth of the matter is that our very presence on those campuses is activist. The fact that, that those kids get up every day and they keep going back in the face of some of the things that they are confronted with trying to get their educations um, in spaces that weren't made for them, quite frankly, that that is also part of the struggle. Getting yourself 
to law school so that you can defend protesters, so that getting into public policy to be able to think about how to solve some of these, these problems, all of that is activist. Um, and so we have to think about it more broadly, but we also have to recognize that this is something you have to get in shape for, and you have to understand that this is, you know, that our, our ancestors did this all day, every day for years on end, and it was the most important thing that they did because they did it for themselves, they did it for their families, they did it for both their ancestors and their descendants, um, and they were gonna do it until the job was done. You know, as an African-American person, I am constantly asking myself, where does racism come from? Is it the inability to have empathy for someone else, the lack of understanding? It's like, and it does, it, it hasn't gone away in my entire lifetime. I'm, I've had several experiences and it's, it's heartbreaking because you think about your children and your children's children and you hope at some point it will stop. But where does it all come from? Where does it all originate? Where? Well, I, I told you, it's, it's, it was part of our founding. And we had to rationalize the, as, as a Judeo-Christian nation, right? We had to rationalize the, the mistreatment and, and enslavement and genocide and conquest and all of those things. And we justified that by determining that the people that we were killing and enslaving and stealing from were less than human. Um, and we, again, we have never, and, and social science emerged as a field of study that reinforced that idea so that if if you know we started out by saying well we know that blacks are intellectually inferior because their skulls are smaller so their brains are smaller but then they'd go out and measure and say oh in fact maybe their skulls are bigger and so then they would find some way to make that argument even though the skulls are bigger and not smaller so maybe now you've got a small brain just jiggling around in there too much and so their, you know, their brain capacity isn't what white people's are. So we have a history of creating, of just finding evidence or creating evidence to reinforce that original narrative. I, um, and that hasn't, that hasn't gone away. And again, if we change that narrative, then all of that American, that rugged individualism, that picking yourself up, from by your bootstraps, that being a self-made person, then you have to start to acknowledge that maybe those things aren't true. That maybe I'm proud of a country that has done some things that we shouldn't be proud of. And all of that run, it, it creates such cognitive dissonance that we just keep looking for the evidence that helps us make sense of the status quo because it's comfortable. So again, we, we, we stopped being able to prove innate sort of physical inferiority. And so we moved to cultural inferiority. So it's not that we couldn't be as smart as white people. It's that we just don't value education as much, even though black people risk death to learn how to read, right? One of the first things they wanted in freedom and during slavery was an education. 
but somehow we don't value education in the same way. Um, you know, we prefer self, we prefer welfare dependence to self-sufficiency. The, these are all of these stereotypes that served uh, white supremacy at various times that we never went back and said, you know what, that wasn't true. We were wrong. We shouldn't have said those things. And persisting inequality and the consequences of inequality look like what I'm air quoting as proof of those arguments, right, of those stereotypes, because Black people do have higher high school dropout rates. They are less likely to go to college. They are more likely to be unemployed, but it's not because they don't value education or because they don't value hard work. It's because inequality, it's because of poverty, because white folks who live in poverty also have high dropout rates and are less likely to go to college and are more likely to be unemployed. Racism has been um, a big topic in, in my home when my son left for college. And he went to a small liberal arts school in the Midwest. And he, coming from Los Angeles, was shocked, absolutely shocked at the attitudes and racism, even against himself being Jewish, that he encountered. There's so much disparity, I think, between, and I hate to say this, the coasts and the middle of the country. Mm -hmm. How do we begin to to fix that divide? I mean, one of the things I've been struggling with is I want to do something, but yet I'm being told to just stop and listen, and then I'm being told that my silence is not good enough, and to just donate, which I don't think, which of course is going to be done, but I feel like I, or my son, when he was in that situation, if we say anything, we get get chastised on both sides. What do I tell him? What do I do? I mean, the only thing that's made sense to me is what Van Jones said like two weeks ago, which was, It's no longer okay just to say, I'm not racist. You must be anti, actively anti-racism. But, you know, my son suddenly found himself in the middle of the country not knowing, and now we're at home, and neither of us know what the correct, unoffensive thing to do is. I I think, so there's there's a lot that's going on there. And um, I think the first thing is, White people aren't comfortable with discomfort, right? Like you got to sit with that. We're unco- I'm uncomfortable all the time. Every time I walk out of my house, you know, I've been I've been on my campus at Penn for 24 years now, I think. But and I love Penn, mm-hmm. but Penn is not. I don't have the same. I am not that person who wears a bunch of Penn stuff, and you know because. I don't, I still don't have that relationship to a place that has been very good to me um, because I can't be my full self there. Mm -hmm. Um, And most black people are uncomfortable at some point in their day, every day. Mm -hmm. White people just don't think that somehow if you're just uncomfortable you want your, they want the, the discomfort to go away. And I'm saying you need to sit with that. 
the most, and, and, and think about why you're uncomfortable, right? So when you look at those protesters, why is it the tendency to focus on the few who loot and not on the many who are peacefully protesting and what they're protesting about? You know, what, and you can't fix this like that right away. You need to be comfortable with that. And then think about, okay, if I have to do this over a long period of time and I have to be uncomfortable while it happens, then what does that process look like? Um, you know, it's hard. And, it's, and, it, and I imagine that it is especially hard for white people who really are well-intentioned, right? And good-hearted and compassionate because you have to accept the fact that by virtue of your birth and growth in a racist society, you have internalized it because it's in the air. You can't escape it. And you have to know that for most of us, as long as we see people trying, like legitimately trying, again, struggle with that discomfort, sit with it. Don't ask me to fix it for you because I'm, I'm just trying to live right? Or I'm trying to keep my family okay, or I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to do these other things. So I, I think it's okay to be uncomfortable and you need to just be okay with being uncomfortable. And you can search for books on anti-racism on Amazon and you can start there and you can search for uh, Facebook groups that are done by white anti-racists because, you know, we, because black folks didn't make this happen. Right. right. And and so honestly, the the best thing to be done in and, and part of what it means when Van Jones says you, it's not enough to be not racist, you need to be anti-racist, is that you need to accept that this is really white people's problem to fix. They did I, it. I agree. I feel like as we're watching globally, people responding to George Floyd's death, this is not an, just an American problem. This is a human mm -hmm. problem. Mm hmm. And I think that we have to start to see it from that lens. And until we do, we're going to continue to have problems because people of color are going to constantly, there's going to be this inequality. That's the denomination. That's the denominator, rather. It's there. And it's going to take time, but it's going to take people being real. And like you said, Camille, feeling the discomfort that people of color and minorities deal with every single day when they step outside of their door. And be clear, it's not, you know, it's, it's racial minorities who experience that, but it's non-heterosexual people who experience that in varying environments, women, whether white or people of color experience that, right? So, so you know, we all have privileges and we all have places where we're subject to racism or, or discrimination of various kinds. And so part of it is figuring out where are the places where you have privilege, whether you ask for it or not, right? So I have economic privilege. I didn't ask for it, but I need to recognize that even my experience as a Black woman isn't the same as some other, as some other Black women's experience, right? And how can I be of, of service to them, knowing that I have resources that they don't. Um, I am biracial, right? So I have skin tone privilege. 
dark-skinned Black people struggle with things that I never struggle with. And I need to be aware of that and think about what that means for, for my the things that I have access to in the world. Um, and, 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 how do, and am I aware enough of it that I'm not inflicting harm on other people? Um, so, I mean, those are the things that we all have to think about um, that, again, some parts of the white population, because there are other parts that are really trying to get it, and they're working really hard at it. They're, you know, white men who are trying to be feminist and, and are, are working at feminism. Um, white people who are anti-racist and working really hard at that, but it's, it's a struggle, and they'll tell you that. Camille, I cannot thank you enough for the time you have given us today. Um, you are phenomenal. People should go yeah. and read your books. People should look for your lectures on YouTube. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you.